You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings and salutations to all. Welcome back to Attaboy Clarence. I do hope you had a marvellous Christmas and that your holiday has been fabulous. Decided to forego the old Christmas special this year in favour of a New Year special, something a bit different. Plus, what with the House of Hammer and all the best lines Christmas specials, kind of thought people might be sick of me wishing them a Merry Christmas, so here, have a Happy New Year instead. Well, the year gone by has been a funny old one, bittersweet at times, and certainly provided its share of challenges. But there are always high notes to go alongside the blue ones. Firstly, thank you so much for listening. You've been great company this year, and I dearly appreciate you sticking with me, especially as I've been stretched a little thin over the past 12 months. So many new opportunities have opened up, and I'm doing my best to balance them all with my regular stuff. But again, thank you for your patience. What I love most about this time of year are not the endless leftovers from Christmas Day, the perennial headache that just won't quit, the spiralling debt because of all the gift buying, no. What I really love about New Year's are all the gold-armed top ten lists of the year. So of course, I'm going to jump all over that belly bandwagon because the end of the year is a time to reflect on the glories gone by. You know, it's been such a hectic year that I haven't even been able to tell you about some of the incredible movies I've seen from the Golden Age in 2021. But to kick us off today, allow me to share with you now my personal top 10 wow movies of 2021. The Golden Age movies I watched for the first time in 2021 and which wowed me completely. At number 10... When Tomorrow Comes from 1939, starring Charles Boyer and Irene Dunn. Interestingly, this was Universal's most successful film of 1939, but it seems to have been swept under the rug due to the absolute avalanche of classic movies that came out during that year. This is the very sweet, painfully poignant story of a waitress who falls in love with a concert pianist, but who then discovers that their relationship can never be... It's strikingly adult, gloriously romantic, and it really stuck with me. I'll tell you about it at more length in a future episode. A beautiful film. I beg your pardon, but Mr. Carb's on the phone. Who? Mr. Carb, the man who runs this restaurant. Oh, please, do I have to speak to the manager because I want some American cheese? Maybe he wants to talk about something else. But I don't know him. Are you sure? Positive. What name did he ask for? What? I say, what name did this Mr. Carb ask for? Now you've got me. I beg your pardon. He was French. How did you know it was me? Well, you're the only Frenchman in the room. How did you know I was French? Well, 50 million waitresses can't be wrong. At number nine, The Verdict. 
Act from 1946 starring Sidney Greenstreet as the embittered Victorian detective who's been sacked from the force in disgrace only to spy an opportunity to avenge his tattered reputation when a seemingly impossible locked room murder occurs just a few lamp-lit yards away from his house. Also stars Peter Lorre, and while it's often seen as one of the lesser pairings, it absolutely ticked every single box for me. I've seen it about half a dozen times since, and I reviewed it on the Warner Intrigue episode back in July. Murder in a locked room. I find it rather difficult knowing just where to begin, Superintendent. Whoever did it probably killed Hannah Kendall also, some madman seeking revenge on the entire family. If you don't mind, I return to my own quarters, Buckley. Of course. Don't hesitate to call on me if I can be of any assistance. Oh, I think I shall be able to manage very well. Thank you, Grodner. At number eight, Lost Angel from 1943, starring Margaret O'Brien and James Craig. Usually, child performances in movies are a mixed bag. But Margaret O'Brien really transcends in the tale of a little girl who's been brought up as part of a scientific experiment and who escapes into the world to find out what makes life worth living in the company of James Craig's jaded reporter. They both have the most miraculous effect upon each other and my tears of happiness and heartbreak were only matched by the volume of my belly laughs throughout. It's a little miracle of a movie that I reviewed for patrons back in April. What paper are you from? The transcript. Oh, reactionary, isn't it? I suppose you read it every day. Just the editorials. I go over them with Professor Richards. And what do you think of our editorials? Oh, we find them amusing. <clears throat> Have you prepared a list of questions you want me to answer? Well, I thought we'd just... Could... Would you begin by my giving you the schedule of my day? Well, it's fine, it's fine. Well, I have an English lesson first, then history, art, then... Uh, oh, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Then algebra, economics, Chinese, semantics, and beginning tomorrow, philosophy, because I'm six years old today. Well, happy birthday to you. Thank you. At number seven, They Won't Believe Me, from 1947, starring Robert Young, Susan Hayward, and Jane Greer. A delightfully twisting film noir mystery about a love rat who finds himself in an impossible situation when it comes to the death of his mistress. It's one of those movies that, on the surface, seems like your standard fare but by the end, has become one of the most tangled moral quandaries you can imagine. Mr. Ballantyne, you're the defendant in this case, are you not? I am. Charged with the brutal murder of Verna Carlson. That's right. Are you willing to describe for the jury, to describe truthfully the events which led to the placement of that charge? I certainly am. At number six, Black Angel from 1946, starring Dan Durier and Peter Lorre. A recent watch for me, and I was floored by the ingenuity of the script, as well as the turn by Durier as a good guy for once. I can't tell you anything about the story for fear of ruining the shattering revelations that emerge as the story plays out, but I can assure you that it's nothing but quality from start to finish. Watch it and be dazzled. We're from the police. Has anything happened? He's been hurt. There's been an accident. Take it easy, Mrs. Bennett. There's been no accident. Well, then what is it? My husband said he had some business to attend to. I'm Captain Flood. Homicide Division. 
Homicide. There's been a murder. A woman by the name of Marlowe. That was the business your husband was attending to. Number five? With my reputation? What's that reputation? My Reputation from 1946, starring Barbara Stanwyck as a widow who feels the stirrings of love once more when she meets the dashing Major Landis, played by George Brent. Thing is, her so-called friends are all opposed to her moving on, and so are her young sons, who both cherish their father's memory. It's a gut-wrenching watch, at times, but the insights that it explores, especially in its third act, make it one of the more human stories I've seen this year, and the climax arrives with a trainload of emotional heft. Stanwyck is incredible, and she's ably supported by a wonderful turn by Eve Arden. I'll get this off my chest in a hurry, Riyadh. The boys came home from the party extremely upset by some things they overheard here. Well, why pick on me? Because it happened in your house. Now, I don't even want to know who did the talking, but I'm asking you as a friend to put a stop to it. I did the talking. And since we seem to be letting our hair down, I think you're behaving abominably. Is being seen with a man such a dreadful crime? It's the way you're being seen, which we don't like. What is this nonsense about Lake Tahoe? Oh, come now, Jess. You don't expect us to believe you went there for a pleasant little rescue. Noir Vember gave me the chance to blow through my noir watch pile, and I'm ashamed to say that The Dark Corner from 1946 was a movie that I'd often passed over. However, it's since shot to the top of my favorite noir fables, if only for Lucille Ball's stellar turn as the heroine. It's also one of those movies that seems to perfectly encapsulate everything we all love about film noir. The shadows stretch long. The revelations come thick and twisty, and the whole endeavor stands as one of those prime examples of noir in a snow globe. Everything you love and want, all in one little universe. Lieutenant Reeves, maybe you can help me if you know anything I want to know. Well, I don't know anything you couldn't find out by asking Mr. Gold. Nice quality, loyalty. How long have you been working for him? Several weeks. What do you know about him? I like him. Keep you busy. I sharpen pencils, do the typing, answer the phone, and mind my own business. Number three is Two of a Kind from 1951, starring Edmund O'Brien and Elizabeth Scott. Begins as a kind of noir take on the old Anastasia legend. O'Brien's hired to play the part of a missing heir and infiltrates the home and the hearts of an elderly couple with the aim of embezzling their fortune. However, when the plan is threatened, the guys who hired O'Brien decide to shift things up a gear and events become deadly. It's a real page-turner of a movie, with a plot you simply cannot predict. It's one of the most anxious, thrilling, enthralling experiences I've had this year. Beat it, Trouble. Aren't you going to thank me for paying your fine? Yeah. And thanks for the way you spoke up when the cops arrived. All you had to say was the big ape was annoying you. Some night might not have gone to jail at all. I wanted to see how you'd make out with the police. I gave my right name. I know, so you're clean at the moment. I'm glad. Get in. Slide over. Number two this year is something markedly different, though. Cloudburst from 1951 is a Hammer Studios thriller of which I was expecting zero. But within five minutes of opening, I was hooked completely by one of the smartest, most emotionally affecting, most devastating tales of a man's slow descent into his own personal hell. The story surrounds a World War II veteran who embarks upon a rampage of revenge after suffering a heartbreaking tragedy. It's like an early prototype for Death Wish, 
but handled far more elegantly and with layers of resonance you simply won't believe. I can't say any more than that for fear of spoiling it for you, but I can assure you that it's one of the greatest British noirs ever made and a classic that definitely deserves re-evaluation. I wasn't going to break down. I wasn't going to. Don't keep it in. Why didn't he stop, John? Why didn't he? Steady. You'd stop for a dog. Oh, they won't get away with it, I promise you that. They won't get away with it. They? You told the coroner there was only one man in the car. Well, I saw there was. Well, then why did you say they? Yes, John, why did you? But the film that wowed me more than any other this year was one I watched for the first time at the second film festival just past. Yes, we had two film festivals this year, both packed to the rafters with classic movie goodies. And yet, The Crimson Pirate from 1952 was a movie I'd heard of but never seen and which absolutely knocked everyone's socks off. I've always been a fan of swashbuckling fun. But never before have I seen something so exuberant, so inventive, so wild, and so fun. This is the quintessential example of the type of movie they just can't make anymore. Burt Lancaster stars as the Crimson Pirate himself, alongside Nick Cravat, Eva Bartok, and Christopher Lee, and I kid you not, it is literally 104 minutes of action and thrills that escalate until the most giddy climaxes. You may have seen ridiculous action set pieces in movies before, but you have never seen anything quite like The Crimson Pirate. It's simply one of the greatest action movies ever made. I get goosebumps just thinking about it. Review coming soon. Gather round, lads and lasses, gather round. You've been shanghaied aboard for the last cruise of The Crimson Pirate. A long, long time ago in the far, far Caribbean. Remember, in a pirate ship, in pirate waters, in a pirate world. Ask no questions. Believe only what you see. No. Believe half of what you see. Ten movies. All of them are wow. One minute to midnight. One minute to go. One minute to say goodbye. Before we say hello. Let's start the new year right Twelve o'clock tonight When they dim the light Let's begin Kissing the old year out Kissing the new year in Let's watch the old year die With a fond goodbye And our hopes as high as a kite How can our love go wrong If we start the new
Watch the old year die With a fond goodbye And our hopes as high as a kite How can our love go wrong If we start the new And we are duty-bound to start the new year off right with Bing. Thank you, sir. That was Bing Crosby with Let's Start the New Year Right. And why don't we take Bing's advice and start things off tonight with a New Year's adventure? We're in the company of Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce for this New Year's outing as they take up the mantles of Master Sleuth and Assistant Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson for a surprising little mystery entitled The Iron Box. And so off we go. And now I'm sure Dr. Watson's waiting for us, so let's drop in and see. Good evening, Doctor. Good evening, Mr. Bartell. Drop your usual chair. Thank you. Ah, uh, that's it. Well, did you enjoy the Christmas holidays? <laughs> well, I've, I've had a whale of a time, thank you, but I don't think I can face a turkey or a mince pie for at least another year. <laughs> How about you, Doctor? Oh, I had a very pleasant week, too, my boy. Parties, visitors... A flattering number of Christmas messages to be answered. Oh, say, you got a new pipe. Is that a Christmas present? Yes, new pipe, new tobacco pouch, and a pound of my favorite tobacco. All of them sent to me from London by an old client and a friend of mine, Sir Ian Dunbar. An old client, huh? Well, do you mean he was one of your patients, or was he someone that you and the great Sherlock Holmes helped? The latter, Mr. Bartell. As a matter of fact, it was receiving this gift that reminded me of the story I've decided to tell you tonight. A story in which Ian Dunbar played a prominent part. And how did it begin? The day before New Year's Eve in 1899. Sherlock Holmes and I sat in opposite corners of a first-class railway carriage. We sped towards Edinburgh in the Flying Scotsman. What took you and Sherlock Holmes up there, Doctor? It started off as a holiday visit, Mr. Bartell. My old friend Sir Walter Dunbar had asked Holmes and me to spend a few days with him at Dunbar Castle, about 20 miles outside Edinburgh. After we left King's Cross Station, Holmes, his sharp, eager face framed in his deer-stocking cap, dipped into the bundle of fresh papers which he brought with him. We left Bedford far behind us before he thrust the last one of them under the seat, leaned across, and offered me his cigar. Careful cigar, Watson. No, no, thanks, Ophel. I'll, I'll stick to the pipe. Flying Scotsman's living up to its name. They're going splendidly. Our present rate is 53 and a half miles an hour. Oh, I hadn't noticed the quarter-mile post. Nor have I, but the telegraph posts on this line are 60 yards apart. With the aid of a watch, the calculation is a simple one. Watson, my dear fellow, we have several hours ahead of us. Now, tell me more about Sir Walter Dunbar. I have a feeling that he's in some kind of trouble. But you haven't wanted to talk about it. Well, it's not exactly trouble, Holmes. But there's a strange problem that confronts the Dunbars. A problem that'll be settled at midnight tomorrow. Oh, indeed. Night of New Year's Eve, eh? Yes, exactly. But to, to really appreciate the story, I have to begin by telling you of the death of old Sir Thomas Dunbar. The father of the present baronet, I suppose. Yes, he was severely wounded at Waterloo, though he managed to last out long enough to get back to Dunbar Castle. The story goes that as he lay there on his deathbed, he told his wife of his plans. Uh, dinner grave, lass. Uh, fetched the baronetcy home from Waterloo. 
What if I fetch the mortal wound as well? Oh, hush, lass. I'm not afraid to die. All that niggles me is that I shall never see the child you bear. They say Wattle Scott no coming yet. Eh, can he visit the deathbed of his old friend? Oh, who's there? Is that you, Sandy Murdoch? Aye, Thomas. It's me. Aye. I'm leaving an unborn son behind me when I die. Now, I don't trust women or children or banks for that matter. Put the best part of my wealth and gold in the big iron box you'll find under the bed. The money's there. I and something else for a rainy day. You have to keep that box in trust for me, Sandy. You can turn it over to my boy on the New Year's Eve before his 21st birthday. And he'll be a man and wise enough to know how to use it. You understand, Sandy? I Thomas. But supposing your bairn's a girl. A girl? I tell you, it'll be a boy. And we'll name him Walter after my good friend. So, Walter Scott. Very interesting story, Watson. And that child, of course, is the gentleman we are going to see now, Sir Walter Dunbar. Exactly. And the first baronet was a friend of Sir Walter Scott while his son conversed with your acquaintance. Why, the, the family singularly rich in literary friendships. That's not very funny, Holmes. Uh, to continue, I suppose you can guess what happened. Sir Thomas carefully drew up a document to specify. The New Year's Eve before the baronet's 21st birthday. And the poor child was born on February 29th. <laughs> it was a leap year. <laughs> So poor Sir Walter is still waiting for his iron box full of gold. Yeah, he'll be 84 next year, and yet legally, with only one birthday every four years in the eyes of the law, he's 21. A most amusing situation, <laughs> though I'm afraid Sir Walter finds it far from entertaining. <laughs> the lawyers must have been extremely scrupulous in abiding by the letter of the document. Yes, old Sandy Murdoch is dead now, of course. But he too is a great-grandson, William Murdoch, who still handles the Dunbar estate. He'll be at the castle tonight to formally hand over the iron box. I'm delighted you accepted the holiday invitation of Sir Walter. My dear fellow, I've needed a rest, but uh, I've always loathed too strict a one. This situation may pose a nice little problem for me. Problem? Yes, I'm reasonably certain that the aged Sir Walter Dunbar will not get his iron box full of gold on this New Year's Eve either. But we shall see, old fellow. We shall see. <laughs> Dr. Watson, I'm glad to see you and Mr. Holmes here at the castle. Thank you, my boy. Holmes, this is Ian Dunbar, Sir Walter's grandson. How do you do, Mr. Dunbar? I'm very proud to meet you, Mr. Holmes. I've heard a lot about you. Our grandfather will be down in a few moments. Let's go into the library, shall we? Well, I imagine Sir Walter's quite excited about tonight's ceremony, isn't he? <laughs> Wouldn't you be? If you'd waited 63 years too long for an inheritance. <laughs> Thank the Lord I had the foresight to be born on the prosaic date of August the 21st. <laughs> Even if your grandfather's death, you would be the next baronet, I take it. Yes, Mr. Holmes. You see, my father was killed two months ago at Moffat. Yes, yes, I read about it in the papers, my boy. I'm, I'm very sorry. Thank you, Doctor. The opening of the box isn't going to be the only ceremony at midnight. Dorothy and I are announcing our engagement. Uh, Dorothy? Uh, Dorothy Small. She and her father are staying here, too. My congratulations. Yes, yes, indeed, Ian. Indeed, mine, too. <laughs> Thank you. It's, it's been quite a battle with her father, though. He's a businessman and isn't impressed with titles when they aren't accompanied by a suitable income. But when we told him about the inheritance, he relented and gave his consent. Ah, here's Dorothy now. 
Dorothy, darling, I want you to meet two friends of mine. Mr. Sherlock Holmes and uh, Dr. Watson. How do you do? Now, how do you do, Miss Moore? Uh, how are you, my dear? From what this young man's been telling us, I, I gather that congratulations are in order. Thank you. <laughs> I finally persuaded Father that Ian would make a worthy son-in-law. For a while, I was afraid we'd have to elope for Gretna Green. <laughs> Live in a cottage on bread and cheese and law that braves a parental wrath, just as they do in the storybook. Oh, Sir Walter, there you are. Uh, Watson, my dear boy. Uh, how are you? And this must be your friend Sherlock Holmes. How do you do, Sir Walter? <laughs> Vera well for a young nipper who'll be 21 at midnight. <laughs> oh, uh, gentlemen, may I introduce Mr. Herbert Smith? How do you do, sir? I believe that we have to congratulate you on the engagement of your daughter. Hmm. That was supposed to remain a secret until midnight. Mm-hmm. The Dunbar box was finally opened. Ah. Didn't be grouchy, Herbert. The children are in law, and I'm going to settle money on Ian. And it's New Year's Eve. Let's enter into the spirit of the occasion. Bring out the glasses, Ian. I've had some bottles of my special pride put out. It's the finest port in Scotland. The cream of Dunbar. My father laid the first bottle down the year before I was born. And a drink of the brew will surely warm the cockles of your heart. My mouth's watching already, Sir Walter. When is this uh, lawyer fellow, young Murdoch, getting here? Oh, any moment, Herbert. As soon as he arrives, we'll have dinner, and then we'll be ready for the evening ceremony. He's bringing the famous iron box with him, Sir Walter? If he doesn't, he won't get any dinner, Holmes. Ian, pass the glasses around, my boy. Ah, here you are, Murdoch. Good evening, Sir Walter. Oh, you've got the box we you, I see. Now the party's complete. Oh, let me introduce you. Miss Small, her father, Mr. Small, my grandson, Ian, you know. Sherlock Holmes, Dr. Watson. How do you do, sir? I'm sorry I'm late, Sir Walter. My train was delayed. Oh, that's all right, Murdoch. You're here, and you brought the box. That's all that matters. Ian... Give our young lawyer a drink. Here, I'll help you for it. I must say that this is rather exciting, Holmes. The famous iron box with its inheritance of gold. Yes, and from the size of the box, of a rough guess, I should estimate its cubic content in gold at around 5,000 pounds. Not a vast sum, perhaps, to a businessman like Mr. Small, but a windfall to an impecunious Scottish baronet. Yes, I suppose it is. A strong young man, Mr. Murdoch. How do you mean strong, Holmes? A box that size full of golden sovereigns would weigh a considerable amount. And yet the lawyer carried it single-handed. I know that we're all assembled. I'm going to propose a toast. Though it's still some hours off yet, let's drink to the new year. It means a lot to some of us. To 1900! We should toast more than just 1900, Sir Walter. We should drink to the new century that's about to begin. Good idea, Dorothy. Oh, I'm afraid that wouldn't be quite appropriate, Miss Small. To be accurate, the 20th century won't begin until January the 1st, 1901. And not 1900. Of course. That's it. Dorothy, I'm afraid your wedding can't take place for some time yet. Father, what are you talking about? I read an article in The Guardian the other day that said just the same thing as you, Dr. Watson. And what's more, it said something even more important. It said that 1900 is not a leap year. Oh, rubbish. Leap year comes every four years. There was one in 1896. Then obviously 1900 is one. I think Mr. Small may be right. What do you say, Mr. Holmes? Do you know? Well, I hope no one would bring up this point, but <laughs> it's the a little problem I referred to on the train, my dear Watson. Holmes, for heaven's sake, answer. Is 1900 a leap year or no? I'm afraid it's not, Sir Walter. No? Because of a slight imbalance that would otherwise be produced in the calendar. Of the even century years, only those divisible by 400 are leap years. In other words, 1600 was a leap year, the year 2000 will be a leap year, but uh, 1800 and 1900... I'm not leap year. Then you have no birthday next year, Sir Walter, and I'm afraid I can't open the box tonight. And the Dunbars won't get their inheritance. And you, my dear, 
don't marry for a few more years. I won't allow you to marry a pauper. Mr. Holmes, are you sure of your fact? I'm very much afraid that I am, young man. Oh, this is terrible. I can't stand any more. No, 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 don't take it too bad, Mr. Walter. Here, here, sir. Here, drink this. Uh, That's it, after all. You only have to wait another four years. Another four years? At my age, young man, at my age. Oh, no. I shall never live that long. Aye, what is it, Angus? Dinner is prepared, Sir Walter. You can have it as soon as you're ready, sir. Walter's gone to his room, the young lovers are nearly in tears, and Small and the lawyer Murdoch seem to be positively gloating. Yes, a most depressing atmosphere in which to welcome the new year, but let us at least make the best of it. I think I'll go and have a talk with Sir Walter, and you, my dear chap, why not try and cheer up the young folks? Mm. Some of your experiences in India. Yes, quite an idea. I'll join you in the library. Call me if you, if you want me home. Ah... There you are, my dears. Hello, Dr. Watson. All alone in front of the fire, eh? <laughs> I'm afraid we're not in very good spirits. Sir. Oh, nevertheless, I'll sit down here and join you, if you don't mind. Misery loves company, you know. <laughs> so very kind, Doctor. Oh, I was just trying to persuade Ian to elope with me. But he's being most ungallant. He won't even consider it. How can I, darling? I've got under 200 pounds a year in my own right. How could we live on that? I was counting on the money the grandfather was going to give us to get me started. Now, 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 Miss Small, a little earlier, you talked of wet the green and bread and cheese and <laughs> love in a cottage. Yes, there's a lot to be said for it, you know. Well, to be said for it, yes, Doctor. But have you ever tried it? Not literally, my boy, but uh, I must tell you that when Mary, my wife, and I were first married, I had very little money. In fact, my income was just about the sum that you mentioned. And uh, we were very happy. Ah, but you have a profession, Doctor. Look at me. I've been trained for nothing except to be Laird of Dunbar Castle. I can't support a wife on tradition. But you're young, Ian. You can get some kind of position, I'm sure you yes, can. Yes, of course, of course. As a matter of fact, I think that... Holmes, what is it? What's wrong? The devil's work afoot, Watson. Come with me, old fellow. And you, Mr. Dunbar. Mr. Holmes, what's happened? Sir Walter. I went to his room. It was in darkness. But in the moonlight, I saw two figures struggling by the open casement. One of them was Sir Walter. As I entered, he disappeared from sight. His attacker had pushed him out of the window into the moat. How dreadful. The other man got away in the darkness. We must get lanterns and go out to the moat at once. Though I'm very much afraid, Mr. Dunbar, that your grandfather is beyond our help. Dr. Watson will be back in just a second, so I'd just like to remind you that if you want to serve a wine over the holidays that you're sure the ladies will enjoy, serve Petri California Muscatel. Petri Muscatel is a golden wine with a wonderful flavor. The flavor of big, plump Muscat grapes. And you know what a flavor that is. I'm sure you'll find that Petri Muscatel is the favorite wine of all women, just as Petri Port is the favorite wine with men. And incidentally, if you're not sure which to get, Petri Muscatel or Petri Port, don't buy one, buy two. Get them both, and you'll be sure to please everyone. Now, to get back to our story... Someone had pushed poor old Sir Walter out of his bedroom window and into the moat below. Isn't that right, Dr. Watson? Yes, Mr. Bartell. Of course, we grabbed lanterns as fast as we could and rushed outside, but it was a hopeless task. The water was eight or ten feet deep, and it seemed obvious that the elderly Sir Walter wouldn't have a chance of saving himself. But we searched on, 
the thicker bobbing lanterns and the scurrying figures in the frosty moonlight, forming a weird... Anders, bring a lantern over here. Aye, sir. Can you see anything, Holmes? Nothing. Well, I don't see why your friend doesn't call the police, Dr. Watson. He's accomplishing nothing. He thought there might be a chance of finding the old man alive, Mr. Small. He wants to avoid a scandal, if possible, for your sake, sir, as well as the Dunbar. The scandal can't touch me or Dorothy over this. Her engagement was never announced. Thank That's a great pity, sir. I should think some new blood in your family would be a great improvement. You're being confoundedly impertinent, And doctor. you'll be confoundedly heartless, sir. Well, Holmes, have you given up hope? I'm afraid we'll never find him without dragnets and grappling hooks. I have to call the police. What time is it? Sir Ian, you know the time? What did you call me, Mr. Holmes? Sir Ian. By Jove, yes. It does seem a bit premature, Holmes, but of course you're right. If your poor grandfather's dead, Mr. Dunbar, you're the baronet now. And the time, Sir Ian? It's, it's a quarter to twelve, Mr. Holmes. A quarter of an hour to the new year, Sir Ian. Doesn't that fact suggest something to you? Yes. Yes, it does. So I'm the new baronet, am I? Very well, then. There'll be no more talk of the police for 15 minutes. I want all of you to come back to the castle with me. As the last chime of midnight rings out, I shall have a statement to make. A statement that I want you all to hear. He brought us all back here for home. Um, something very funny going on. I tell you, I don't like the look of it. And I, Watson, like the look of it very much. I wish you wouldn't be so dashed mysterious. What are you up to? You haven't taken a step yet towards finding the murderer? Have I? I wonder what causes the beads of perspiration on Mr. Small's brow. Small? You mean that Small... I wonder the... what causes the singular look of apprehension on the face of Murdoch, the young lawyer. You remember, of course, on my remarking how easily he carried the large iron box. Chris Scott, yes. It took a strong man to throw the water out of the window. What? Huh? A new year is approaching. Ladies and gentlemen, in view of our recent tragedy, this is one New Year's Eve when none of us feels like song and jollity. But there still remains a ritual duty for me to perform. Mr. Murdoch, open the iron box, please. But, but, but I can't do that. It was only to be opened for your grandfather. No, Mr. Murdoch. The phrase was that it was to be opened on the New Year's Eve before the baronet's 21st birthday. I am now the baronet, and I shall be 21 next year on August 21st. Open the box, please, Mr. Murdoch. Again, darling, how practically clever are you? Good lad, I hope you think of it. Serene. Murdoch, open that box. Very well. But I'm afraid you're in for something of a shock. Scott, the, the box is empty. Except for a sheet of note paper in the bottom. What's the meaning of this, Murdoch? Read that paper, Sarir, and you'll understand. I owe you 4,000 sovereigns. And it's signed Alexander Murdoch on behalf of Murdoch and Murdoch, lawyers. You'd better explain this. It's the family skeleton, Sarir. That note is signed by my great-grandfather, the one that witnessed the original deed concerning the box. As soon as Sir Walter was born on that February the 29th, my great-grandfather realized... The money wouldn't have to be produced for 84 years. And so he stole it. He borrowed it. He always intended to pay it back, but he was never able to. When he died, he told my father of his secret. And my father in turn told me. We've always planned to put back the money, Sir Ian, but we've never been able to. This is daylight robbery. You should prosecute the me and the firm still in business. You can ruin them. You can sue them for every penny they have. Mr. Small, you've already shown a marked aversion to my family. I suggest you allow me to handle their affairs. Bravo, Ian. How dare you, Dorothy? 
Go to your room. No one's going to that room. No one's leaving here until the police arrive. I'm convinced that one of you murdered my grandfather tonight. And if you ask me, it's obvious who that someone is. Who, Dr. Watson? You, Mr. Murdoch. You came here planning to kill poor old Sir Walter because you never intended to open that box. You thought that your secret would die with him. That's a lie. I was going to tell him everything and then ask for time to pay the money. I didn't kill of him. Of course he didn't. There's your murderer. You yourself, Ian. Father, what are you saying? I'm saying that Ian's the murderer. He saw that the box wasn't going to be open for another four years. He realized that the money couldn't marry Dorothy, so... He killed his grandfather and then ordered the box open. You're trying to cover yourself. You pushed grandfather out of that window tonight. You thought that if he died, the box would never be open. So Dorothy couldn't marry me. You, you, you young Gentlemen, gentlemen. Upon my soul, Holmes, you seem remarkably calm. Do I, my dear Watson? I must say I'm absolutely fascinated by listening to three people accusing each other of murder. And each of them producing perfectly sound motives. It's a remarkable example of the dangers of reasoning from motive alone. We should profit by experience, Watson. Mr. Holmes, how can you be so calm? There's a murderer in this I room. I suppose this game of courage is getting a little out of hand, Miss Small. Let's conclude it. You'd better come out now. That's tapestry. It's moving. A happy new year to you all. Grandfather. Sir Walter. How am I seeing a ghost? Oh, Sir Walter, you're all right. Well, what kind of a game have you been playing? It's a bunny game that Holmes and I invented. You might call it forcing the issue. I was determined to have the box open before the next four years were out, whilst I was still alive to look inside it. But the trickery of your family, Murdoch, has made me a very unhappy man. Sir Walter, I shall pay back the money in a few years. I swear I will. It'll be too late to do me any good. But I'll take care that Ian gets it. I've half a mind to prosecute you. Grandfather, the money isn't important now that you're all right. Uh, you were counting on it just the same, my boy. So that you could marry Dorothy. I know that. Uh, she'll never marry a pauper. I won't allow it. When I'm 21, you can't stop me, Father. And I am going to marry Ian. Be quiet. Sir Walter, it's a very unsavory business. Uh, I think that you owe us an explanation of your behavior tonight. You tell him, Holmes. I fancy a wee drop of cream of Dunbar. Watching you all search from a body in the moat has made me... <laughs> the explanation is a very simple one, ladies and gentlemen. When you arrived here tonight, Mr. Murdoch, I knew from the way you handled the box that it could not contain the sum of gold it was supposed to. And so you, you suspected fraud and devised a plan to force the opening of the box, Yes, right? and Sir Walter was an eager conspirator. Of course I was. Ian is 21 next August. Supposing, supposing I had died after he came of age and before my next birthday, four years hence, the box would never have been opened. And so we invented the fake murder story. By the way, Ian, I must congratulate you for grasping the possibilities of the situation so speedily. If you hadn't demanded the opening of the box, the Murdoch's secret might still be a secret. It was a clever plan, Holmes. It's too bad that it had to have such a miserable ending. I'm not sure that we have finished with the matter. Uh, Mr. Murdoch. Yes, Mr. Holmes. Do you say that your family took 4,000 pounds from that box? Yes, Mr. Holmes. Curious. I would have sworn from its size that it would hold closer to 5,000. And in your account of the legend, Watson, you told me that Sir Thomas Dunbar stated on his deathbed that he had put something else in the yes, box. Mr. Something for a rainy day, is that yes. it? Mm-hmm. Did the Murdochs find that extra something? No, Mr. Holmes. They found nothing but the gold. Oh, that's very odd. I think I'll take a closer look at that box if you don't mind. Since this seems to be a night of telling secrets, I think you might as well know, Father, that if you don't give your consent, I shall elope with you. Oh, bravo, my dear, bravo. No such thing. <laughs> I admire your resolution, young lady, but I hardly think it will be necessary. What do you mean, Holmes? Permit me to show you all the treasure of the Dunbars. What are you found, Holmes? The something for a rainy day that old Sir Thomas spoke of. You see, since the cubic contents of the box obviously differed from my calculations, I deduced the existence of a false bottom. I was correct. And in that space, I found this. Oh, it's a manuscript. Quite so, the manuscript of a book. Look at the title page and see the author's name. 
history of the Dunbar family. By Sir Walter Scott. I think, Sir Walter, that an original and unpublished manuscript by your distinguished namesake will prove worth several times the gold that is missing from that box. You've saved the day for us, Holmes, my boy. God bless you. Oh, oh, this has been a stranger new year as ever I knew. But it turned out to be a bonny one, thanks to you, Holmes. Well, fill up your glasses. We're going to drink a toast to the New Year. By Joe, yes, Sir Walter. This is really a happy occasion. Then let's complete it by singing the traditional song of the season, Old Lang Syne. And in this case, when we sing, Should Old Acquaintance Be Forgot, I feel that in our hearts we should be thinking of Sir Walter Scott. He died over 60 years ago. He's made us all very happy here tonight. Uh... Should old acquaintance be forgotten and never run Doctor, that turned out to be a very happy new year for all concerned. Yes, that's one new year that I'll never forget. Well, I sure hope you'll always remember this one, too. Oh, just a second, my boy. That calls for a glass of port. Fine. Uh, well, to a, to a happy new year, my boy, for you and for our many friends listening in. And to you, Doctor. Thank you, Basil and Nigel, for a splendid adventure. My apologies, by the way, if I sound a little strange today. It actually hurt my mouth, so... Uh... <laughs> I'm slurring slightly, I do apologise. Now, despite Christmas being the prevailing theme throughout holiday movies, New Year's does have a strong showing, especially through classic cinema. Even small scenes make their indelible mark at New Year's. Just think about the tragic final moments of one-way passage, a ghostly rendezvous amid the chaos of a New Year's party. Or how about the sweet climax of Remember the Night from 1940 with our lovers parted but only temporarily and each making the other a New Year promise? Or how about the dramatic weight of the Brighton Strangler with its New Year's pursuit across the rooftops and then him walking off to his death for some reason. Another New Year's Eve set mystery is also kind of fun, so I thought I'd tell you about it today. This stars Adolf Monjou in the leading role of Thatcher Colt, Commissioner of Police, one of the less well-remembered Golden Age detectives, but who enjoyed a triple outing in cinema back in the pre-code days. The first of his adventures is The Nightclub Lady from 1932, a mystery set in a New York nightclub and starring Mayo Metho, Nat Pendleton, and Skeets Gallagher, and here's a clip. Lean over backwards and pull you to the mat with me. Now all I've got to do is to press hard, and I can tear you limb from limb. Charming thought. Well, what do you think of it? That's great. You could probably uh, revolutionize the wrestling business with it, provided I didn't get a headlock on you. That's it. That's just what's sticking. If I could figure out the next hold, I'd have one of the best. Say, listen, let's go up to the gymnasium and try it out. But now? Oh, yes, why not? Listen, maybe you don't know, but honestly, this is New Year's Eve, and it's a peculiar custom in this bewildered country of ours that on this night of all nights, we celebrate. Ooh, 
see all these people here? They're having a good time. That's what we're supposed to be doing. You know why? Because we're kicking the old year right in the pants, just tossing it right out of our lives. And we're happy about it. We sure are happy about it. It's been a rotten year. Thatcher Colt, the police commissioner, is shocked when Lois Carew, a tough nightclub hostess, is murdered in her apartment on New Year's Eve. He's even more determined to find the killer, as Lois had received his personal assurance of safety, as well as police protection, after receiving a mysterious letter stating that she would not live past the stroke of midnight. Don't uh, think I'm curious, but what the heck's going on here? Miss Carew's life has been threatened. What? She uh, got a mysterious note saying she'll be murdered between now and midnight. Between now? That only gives her 15 minutes to live. Exactly. Thing is, the murder has the force baffled. How was Lois killed? The answer, as Colt begins to work it all out, is more surprising and more spine-chilling than anyone could possibly have realized. Doctor, take a look at that puncture. Well, what's the matter with it? Nice clean puncture. How does it compare with the one on Lola Carew's arm? Well, uh, hers was a bit ragged. In fact, the skin had been torn away. Exactly. Give me the robe, uh, Kelly. Here it is. What are you getting at? That mark on Lola Carew's arm never was caused by a hypodermic needle. Well, you yourself saw Lengel give it to her. Certainly he gave her the injection. Her arm was pierced by something else long before Dr. Lengel got there. Pierced by what? First up, love the character of Thatcher Colt from the off in this movie. You are under no illusions about how clever this guy is. There's a marvelous scene at the beginning of the film where he lip-reads a conversation in a nightclub, which leads him off on his merry adventure. And while it is slightly implausible if you wish to scrutinize it, it's played with such authenticity by Adolf Monju that you buy it like mad. Thatcher Colt is one of those characters from the golden age of detective fiction that I'm totally going to search out now because I was fascinated. He strikes me as something like a Philo Vance crossed with an Hercule a debonair, sophisticated mind who's fluent in many languages and who's several steps ahead of every other lawman in the world. He's brilliant. As for the film itself, it's clearly a B-movie, a fact you'll get from the very brief running time. However, it's never boring. It snaps along at a crackling pace, and it contains a murder mystery at its core that reminds you of the best of the locked-room puzzlers from folks like G.K. Chesterton and John Dixon Carr. How on earth is Lois murdered at the strike of midnight on New Year's Eve? The answer is very clever indeed, and also kind of obvious if you think about it. An ingenious murder mystery set upon the strike of the clock at New Year's then, and which kick-started an intriguing detective series for cinema. I can heartily recommend The Nightclub Lady from 1932, a very smart, better-than-average B-movie murder mystery programmer. If you like the sound of it, then do check it out when it joins the Classic Movie Library on Patreon next Monday, the 3rd of January. You need lots of dollars for an accident. You need the kind of protection that only mutual level sells. What do you need? I need to know what on earth he was saying during that song. You need the health insurance that is ideal for young families because it offers you special savings. The younger you are when you start your Mutual of Omaha hospital, surgical, and income protection plan, the lower the cost. The long-term, low-cost protection every young family needs is available now. Ooh, here comes Mr. Sirius. Write for details on this modern, flexible protection that can be tailored to your exact needs. Write Mutual of Omaha 
Omaha, Nebraska. No thanks. I think I'll just listen to your song again. What do you need? You need lots of dollars during sicknesses. You need lots of dollars for an accident. You need the kind of protection that only mutual love sells. What do you need? I'll tell you what, it's very catchy, isn't it? I do love strangely melodic songs in classic radio ads, especially when they contain a sinister element. When a cloud bursts and fresh clean rain falls on a grove of rich green pine. Come play with us. It's mm, so nice. Come play with us, Daddy. And now that same clean scent of pine is in. Daddy. New pine-scented Lysol. Come play with us. Make your home pine sweet and Lysol clean. You can still get regular Lysol, too. Come play with us, Daddy. Let's have something a bit more jolly, please. A laxative should be effective, gentle, close to natural acting. A medicine that can be used with complete confidence. Ah, yes, this is right up my street. Now, X-Lax has been popular with many doctors and millions of people over the years because chocolated X-Lax is effective. My number one request when using laxatives is that they're effective, yes. Nothing worse than when you're out with your friends on New Year's Eve and you've all taken your laxatives and nothing's really happening, you know? X-Lax is so gentle, so close to natural acting, there's no upset. That's why many doctors and millions of people use X-Lax with complete confidence. X-Lax, the laxative that helps you toward your normal regularity, gently. Overnight. Overnight, yes, which always provides a delightful surprise come the morning. My dear acquaintance, it's so good to know you for strength of your hand that's loving and giving and a happy new year with love overflowing with joy
And that was the lovely Peggy Lee with My Dear Acquaintance, A Happy New Year. On now to a very special New Year's edition of Who the Hell is That Hollywood Legend? This episode of What's My Line was broadcast on December 29th, 1963. And to ring in the new year, the panel got to guess the identity of one of Hollywood's brightest lights. Now listen in and see if you can guess who the hell is that New Year's Hollywood legend. This time with a twist. You see, it doesn't take a certain member of the panel very long to guess this star's identity, and for a very, very good reason. So we won't rely on your detective skills this time around. We're not going to come back for the answer later. I'm going to play the whole thing right now, and you'll see why. Just see if you can get there to the answer before the panel do. And now, from New York, let's meet our What's My Line panel. First, the delightful star of stage and television, Miss Arlene Francis. And now, a gentleman that we're very happy to end this year with, an old friend, Robert Q. Lewis. Sorry, it's magnificent. On my left now, the lady whose column appears in New York's Journal American and papers throughout the country, and I'm delighted to spend an almost New Year's Eve with Dorothy Kilgallen. And now, the man that I have a not-so-secret crush on, Bennett Cerf. <laughs> This is the time of year we all make noble resolutions, and we've just made a resolution about our panel moderator. No matter how misleading he is during the coming year, no matter how deliberately he leads us up the garden path, we're going to be forgiving. And uh, we're going to say, you're still a nice man, John Charles Dale. <laughs> and I, too, am full of the milk of human kindness tonight and have decided to forgive Bennett for Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Hello there. <laughs> From last week. Bob Lewis, nice to have you with us. Before Thank the you, new year, get, your new year gets started, and we'll see if we can give you a good mental workout before the new year gets started. Now the special feature of our program, the appearance of our mystery challenger, for which, as always, my colleagues are blindfolded. The blindfolds are in place, panel? Yes, yes sir. Good. Will you enter mystery challenger and sign in, please? Questioning one question at a time, in turn moving clockwise, and we'll begin with um, Bennett Cerf. Well, all those rapturous whistles and something and whatnot would lead me to believe that this is a glorious, gloriously beautiful girl. Is it? Yes. <laughs> Miss Franklin? Are you at the present time appearing in a motion picture on Broadway? Nope. One down and nine to go, Mr. Lewis. Are you now appearing uh, in a regular show on television? Do you mean by regular in a regular series? Yes. Nope. Two down and eight to go, Miss Kilgallen. Uh, 
Do you spend a great deal of time in another country than the United States? No. Three down and seven to go, Mr. Sir. Might I cherish among my personal possessions a lock of your beautiful hair? Good night. Oh. Uh, yep. <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> Better don't you say anything for a I round. Let's see what word. happens. Miss Francis? Well, I think Bennett ought to get, ought to get off the hook fast. It's a cousin if, uh, that, uh, by oh, marriage. Yeah, they got it. Ginger Rogers. Ginger oh. I must explain that Ginger is our house guest. I know. And she spent three hours explaining to me where she was going tonight. And I didn't believe one word of it. Uh, <laughs> didn't you look like you did? Oh. Now, this is to, to get all the things in line. Actually, Miss Ginger is cousin to Phyllis Cerf, Bennett's uh, lovely wife. And they've been going through all kinds of plots and counterplots today <laughs> to persuade Bennett that Ginger would be anywhere in the world except here. Just anyway, we nearly, we got away with it for a little bit, if not for very long. Oh, it's so wonderful We're to see you, nice and to see you again. I must say, I agree thoroughly with those good folks sitting out there. Oh, they blew darling? up when you came in. I don't think anybody like can dance besides you anyway. Oh, I've already, I still you. think every time I see you dance, it takes about... 15 years off me, and I go out and play around the golf better than I ever did before. John, could I say a word about my cousin? You certainly can. This is a prejudiced opinion, but I, I would like to tell you, she is one of the loveliest people in this world. Oh, it's true. Thank you, darling, very much. Isn't it just like that surf to wind up the year with a bang? Huh? <laughs> I guess. But listen, Miss Ginger, if I hear things correctly, you who won such great distinction in, in Hollywood, in the movies, I'm saying you're going to make movies now. Yes, yes, we're going to make, uh, Bill, my husband and I, Bill Marshall, we're going to make movies in Jamaica, the country of Jamaica, which is south of here. Ah, wonderful. <laughs> yes, we have a production company and uh, a contract with the government of Jamaica for 10 years for exclusive making of motion pictures. Oh, it's so such wonderful of, country. It's a beautiful too. country, oh. so you all have to come down and visit us. Well, now, are you, are you going to take a hand at directing and things like no, that? You're no, no, I'm going huh? to be in the producing side of it and act once in a while. Ah, mm -hmm. wonderful. Isn't that nice? Ah, I'd like, love to see you. You dancing over the hills and valleys yes. of that wonderful and island. Yes, the blue clear water. Into the blue mm -hmm. clear water. Ah. Well, I think this is a great way to wind up a year with Ginger well, Rogers sitting by my side. Happy New Year. Happy, and a happy, happy New, New year, year to you. And thanks Thank so much you. for coming to see us. Lovely stuff. Yes, Ginger Rogers was the cousin of Bennett Cerf's wife. And you can just imagine the plotting and misdirection they attempted in order to throw the lovely Mr. Cerf off the scent. But he got there. Wonderful. Well, not all of us are extroverted party types. Some of us prefer a quiet night in instead of the hijinks of New Year's Eve. And some of us, well, some of us want to be out there partying. But it's just that our plans fall through at the last moment. Such is the situation for our Miss Brooks, played by Eve Arden, who in this special New Year's episode finds herself living through a very different New Year's Eve than the one she had planned. It's time once again for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks, written by Al Lewis. Well, as some of you may remember, last night was New Year's Eve. Well, like everyone else, Our Miss Brooks, who teaches English at Madison High School, had looked forward to celebrating with considerable anticipation. But as the poet Robert Burns put it, the best laid plans of mice and men gang after glay. I don't know about the men, but I'm certainly one of the mice Robbie had in mind, because last night somebody really ganged up on my glay. 
started off normally enough Saturday morning as I joined my landlady at the breakfast table. Here, Connie, here's some tomato juice. It'll do you good, dear. What is this, a down payment on tomorrow morning? You don't need any tomorrow. Not if you come to my party tonight. What kind of a party are you having, Mrs. Davis? Very quiet, Connie. I just asked some of the neighbors in to listen to the radio and maybe dance a bit. It'll be a nice, relaxed evening. Of course, I am having some help with the refreshments. Who's helping you? Barney, the bartender from Mulligan's Saloon. <laughs> that should lead to a very relaxed evening, earlier than you think. <laughs> oh, he's not going to serve any whiskey. You see, ever since he's been working for Mr. Mulligan, Barney's insisted on having New Year's Eve off. Why is that? He can't stand drunk. <laughs> Barney likes nothing better than to drop over here and make us a little friendly bowl of punch. If I remember correctly, Connie, you sampled some of Barney's punch last year. I almost did, Mrs. Davis. Somebody jostled me as I was about to drink some, and I spilled it on my black evening gown. I don't remember that at all, Connie. I do. It started a run in my dress. <laughs> oh, you're exaggerating, dear. It was a very mild mixture. Why, we even dipped lady fingers into the punch bowl after a while. I know. And a little while after that, the lady fingers were diving into the bowl. <laughs> oh, I'm just teasing you, Mrs. Davis. I'd like nothing better than to share a little punch with you tonight, but I probably have a date with Mr. Boynton. Probably. Hasn't he asked you yet, Connie? Oh, you know Mr. Boynton. It takes him a week to get enough courage to speak up. You'd think he'd know where he stands by now. I've dropped him enough hints, heaven knows. Hints? Just yesterday, I told him I thought there was nothing quite as exciting as the scent of an orchid and the popping of champagne corks. Do you think it'll work, Connie? Indubitably, Mrs. Davis. He'll probably take me into a florist shop and let me smell an orchid while he cracks his knuckles. <laughs> Mr. Boynton isn't the biggest spender in the world, is he, Connie? No, I think there's a Maharaja in India who spends eight or nine dollars a week more. After all, Mr. Boynton is a school teacher, and he probably just can't... Now, who can that be? Come on in. It's not lost. Finished with your cereal, Connie. Yes, thanks. Well, good morning, Miss Brooks, Mrs. Davis. Hello, Mr. Boynton. Now, isn't that a coincidence, Mr. Boynton? I was just going to clear away the table and clear out. Well, what's coincidental about that? Now she's got a good reason to. <laughs> exactly. See you later, folks. Take your time, dear. <laughs> Well, Mr. Boynton, this is rather a surprise visit. Well, yes, Miss Brooks, I, I guess it is. Want a cup of coffee? All right. Keeps pretty hot in this percolator. There you are. Thank you. Well, that was fun. What'll we do now? <laughs> well, tonight, as you know, is New Year's Eve, Miss Brooks. Yes, I know. It's the one night in the year I believe in celebrating. You see, the only fun a bachelor can have, especially a bachelor school teacher, is to really let go once in a while. Might also be fun to hold on once in a while. <laughs> Don't look so shocked. I'll withdraw the statement. Strike that from the record, clerk. <laughs> the one thing I'm so grateful for, Miss Brooks, is that our relationship has always been completely honest and above board. I can talk to you straight from the shoulder. You certainly can, Mr. Boynton. I, I don't have to beat around the bush. No, you don't. I can come right to the point without stalling. I hear you talking. I, uh, I don't have to mask my real intentions with a lot of pseudo-diplomacy. Never no pseudo-diplomacy. 
Well, what I'm trying to say, Miss Brooks, is that, well, several weeks ago, I, I promised to attend the Biologist Club New Year's Eve party at the Club Jamboree tonight. Oh, that sounds like a lot of fun, Mr. Boynton. Oh, I'm sure it will be. But the ticket cost $5, Miss Brooks, and, well, I, I only had enough for the one when I bought it. And, well, well since then, I, I've had some unexpected holiday expenses and just haven't been able to afford another one. Of course, I'd love to ask you to join me tonight, but I couldn't very well invite you to pay for your own ticket, could I? You could, but I couldn't. <laughs> pay for it, I mean. I've had some holiday expenses of my own, Mr. Boynton. Two whole weeks of eating. Well, I, I'm terribly, ser- terribly sorry we won't be together, Miss Brooks. As a matter of fact, I, I suspected you were just as broke as I am. That's why I came over to see you now. What do you mean, Mr. Boynton? Happy New Year, Miss Brooks. Same to you, Mr. Boynton. And thank you for a lovely morning. That's all right, Miss Brooks. Now let's sing two choruses of Old Lang Syne, and this will be the earliest I've ever folded on New Year's Eve. <laughs> Please don't be annoyed, Miss Brooks. I'll be thinking about you tonight. From the minute I sit down in that nightclub and pick up my noisemaker. Well, thanks, Mr. Boynton. I'll be thinking of you, too, tonight, as soon as I sit down by the window and blow my tin horn. I I guess I'd better be running along now, get cleaned up for the big night. Yes, you do that, Mr. Boynton. I've got to help Mrs. Davis with the dishes. Forgive me if I don't chase you, uh, walk you to the door. Certainly. Well, see you next year, like they say. Don't take any wooden biologists. Now, that's just dandy. What's just dandy, Connie? Oh, where'd Mr. Boynton go? Home to rest. Oh, we've got a big night ahead of us, eh? We've got a big night ahead of him. Mr. Boynton is going to the biologist party alone, Mrs. Davis. Alone? But why, Connie? He just can't afford to take me with him. The tickets are $5 a copy. Now, if I had $5, I could... Mrs. Davis. I'd be happy to, Connie. You would? Of course, but I haven't got a quarter. I spent my entire budget for this week on tonight's party. Oh, well, thanks just the same, Mrs. Davis. No sense in worrying about it, I guess. New Year's Eve is just another night. (laughs) Maybe that's Mr. Boynton again. I'll finish up in the kitchen, Connie. Come on in. The door is still open. Ah, good morning, Miss Brooks. Mr. Conklin, what fortuitous circumstance brings Madison's esteemed principal to the humble abode of a lowly faculty member? You've seen your share of Charlie Chan movies, haven't you? (laughs) Uh, If you'll forgive me, Miss Brooks, I shall skirt the preliminaries and get right to the point. Firstly, Mrs. Conklin is visiting her sister, who has a touch of rheumatism in Philadelphia. That's a bad place to get it. (laughs) Let's dispense with the fripperies, shall we? Secondly, her sister has sent their little boy, age six, to spend the holidays with my daughter Harriet and myself. Thirdly, I have promised Harriet she can go to a New Year's Eve party tonight. And fourthly, I have a dinner engagement with some old professor friends of mine from state normal days. But I don't understand, Mr. Conklin. At this late date, it is almost impossible to secure a babysitter, Miss Brooks. Now I understand. (laughs) I'm sorry, Mr. Conklin, but I've been sitting with children for years now. I'm afraid I'm going to be busy tonight. Ah, what a pity. It would only be until 10 o'clock, and I was contemplating payment of, um, say, $5. Well, I'd like to help you, Mr. Conklin, but it's really out of the question for me to... Did you say $5? (laughs) That is correct. 
Where and when? 7.30, my home. I'll be there, Mr. Conklin. Thank you, Miss Brooks. Thank you very much. Don't bother seeing me to the door. I know the way. Thank you, Mr. Conklin. Thank you very much. Yes, indeed. Mrs. Davis! Mrs. Davis! Yes, dear. What is it? Well, it's going to be a happy new year after all. I'm going to sit with Mr. Conklin's nephew until 10 o'clock, and he's going to give me $5. He must be quite a well-to-do little boy. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Conklin's going to give me the $5. Don't you see, Mrs. Davis, now I can buy my own ticket to the club jamboree and see the old year out with Mr. Boynton after all. Oh, how nice for you, Connie. Oh, just one thing, Mrs. Davis. On our way to the club, may I stop by here to pick up some lady fingers? But doesn't the five dollars you pay include a midnight supper, Connie? Yes, it does, Mrs. Davis. Then what in the world do you want with lady fingers? We've got to have something to slip the waiter. <laughs> Starring Eve Arden will continue in just a moment, but first, here is Vern Smith. Now, proof that brushing teeth right after eating with Colgate Dental Cream helps stop tooth decay before it starts. Continuous research, hundreds of case histories, makes this the most conclusive proof in all dentifrice research on tooth decay. Eminent dental authorities supervised hundreds of college men and women for over two years. One group always brushed their teeth with Colgate right after eating. The other followed their usual dental care. The group using Colgate Dental Cream as directed, using Colgate's exclusively, showed a startling reduction in average number of cavities, far less tooth decay. The other group developed new cavities at a much higher rate. No other dentifrice offers proof of these results. Modern research shows decay is caused by mouth acids, which are at their worst right after eating. Brushing teeth with Colgate's as directed helps remove acids before they harm enamel. Yes, Colgate's contains all the necessary ingredients, including an exclusive patented ingredient for effective daily dental care. So remember, always use Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay. Well, I phoned Mr. Boynton and asked him to meet me in Mr. Conklin's home at 10 that evening. At 9.30, I was still trying to get little Stevie into bed. Now, listen, Stevie, it's getting awfully late. Just when do you propose to go to sleep? Well, soon as I get another glass of water. But I've given you three glasses of water in the last half hour. What do you do with them? I drank two and gave one to my animals. Uh, see, Uncle Osgood bought me these toys for Christmas. They're very nice. Now, get into bed, please. Well, first tuck my lion in the bed. All right. There, your lion's in bed. Now, my tiger... Okay, your tiger's in. Now put my black panther in. Right, the black panther's tucked in. Now I'll just tuck... Stevie, why aren't you getting into the bed? Who do you think I am, Clyde Beatty? (laughs) I wish I had a book on child psychology with me. A nice heavy one. Come on now, shove that menagerie aside and get in. Okay. Hello? Is that you, Harriet? Your daughter's dressing for her date, Mr. Conklin, but thanks for the comparison. On the phone, all voices sound alike to me. Uh, How's my nephew, Miss Brooks? Fine, Mr. Conklin. He's in his zoo. I mean, in bed. (laughs) Good, good. Has the dear little fellow floated off to dreamland yet? Not quite, but one more glass of water should do it. (laughs) 
there hasn't been any change in plan, has there, Mr. Conklin? Why, no, Miss Brooks. Then I can expect you in about half an hour? I'm afraid it'll be considerably longer than a half hour, Miss Brooks. I'm staying over with some friends. But you said you'd be back at ten. That's right. I'll be back at ten a.m. Oh, but Mr. Conklin... Awfully nice of you to do this for me, Miss Brooks. Good night and a happy new year to you. Oh, this is terrible. Harriet! Oh, Harriet! Yes, Miss Brooks? Your dad just called and told me he won't be home until tomorrow morning. I know. He's staying with some old friends of his. From normal. There's nothing normal about it. When I agreed to act as Stevie's sitter, I thought your father would be back at ten tonight. I have a date at that time with Mr. Boynton. Oh, that's a shame, Miss Brooks. Maybe I could call your dad back so we could make some other arrangements. Do you know where these friends of his live? No, I don't. But don't get panicky. We'll think of something as soon as I finish dressing. <gasps> that must be Walter Denton. Will you let him in, please? I'll just be seconds finishing up. All right, Harriet. Coming. Miss Brooks, I want a glass of water. Quiet, Stevie. Darn kids. It weren't for him, I could <laughs> Take it easy. I'm coming. Happy, happy, happy New Year, Miss Brooks. (laughs) Come in, Walter. Isn't it a wonderful night to see the old year out on? Aren't you just in love with tonight, Miss Brooks? I'm crazy about it. Harriet will be ready in a few minutes, Walter. Ah, dear Harriet. You know, that's what I like best about this holiday. The feeling of closeness it gives you to the one you care for. Especially during that one breathless, rapturous moment right before midnight. That moment like the hush of a giant wave ere it pounds mightily upon the golden sand. That tongueless moment of promised ecstasy culminating in a crescendo of clamorous, amorous bliss. <laughs> Have you ever been hit with a six-year-old child? (laughs) Miss Brooks, you don't seem very happy about New Year's. Haven't you got a date with Mr. Boynton? That's just the trouble, Walter. I have. But I also have a date to sit here with Mr. Conklin's nephew, Stevie, until Uncle returns in the morning. It was all a misunderstanding, mostly on my part. Gee, that's a tough break, Miss Brooks. Isn't there any way out for you? I... I know... Maybe you could hire a babysitter to sit in your place. Of course, it couldn't be just any ordinary person. It would have to be a very special kind of sitter to fill your shoes. You never were great in anatomy, were you, Walter? (laughs) But that wouldn't work either. Even if I had the money, which I haven't, it's too late to get anybody now. Well, here I am, Walter. How do I look? Devastating, Harriet. Absolutely soul-destroying. How do you think I look, Miss Brooks? Very atomic, Harriet. You should be the center of all eyes at your party. Gee, I kind of hate to go with you in this spot, Miss Brooks. Did you tell Walter about your dilemma? Yeah, she did, Harriet. But we can't seem to think of any way out. Oh, don't worry about me, kids. I'll just celebrate New Year's Eve some other night. Maybe when Mr. Boynton comes to pick you up, you could talk him into staying here with you instead of going to his old biologist club party. Yeah, there's a swell phonograph and some keen records you could dance to. Maybe I'll do that. In fact, I may do that even if Mr. Boynton doesn't stay. Excuse me, kids. I guess I didn't tuck him in tight enough. I'll be right there, Stevie. You run along to your party and have a good time. You're certainly noble, Miss Brooks. I'm not noble. I'm stuck. (laughs) Go ahead now. It's almost ten o'clock. Noble or stuck, you're solid, Miss Brooks. Thanks, Walter. Maybe Mr. Boynton will notice it and stick around a while. (laughs) I sure hope so. Me too. 
I'll do my best. So long, kid. Hey, did Cousin Harriet go out with Walter Denton? Yes, Stevie, she did. He's an idiot. <laughs> He's very fond of you, too. Here's your water. Oh, thanks. Hey, did I also have an ice cream cone? No, Stevie, no ice cream cones at this hour. With a pickle in it? That's different. You've got to have your vitamins. <laughs> no, I'm just fooling. You've eaten quite enough for one night. Are there any pickles in the house? No, but I'd gladly let you have the one I'm in. <laughs> well, here's my glass. You better leave it near the pitcher. I might get hungry again. Uh-huh. First thing. Oh, that's Mr. Boynton. Now, you put your little head down and dream you're a battleship. Okay. Good night, Miss Brooks. Good night, Stevie. I'll be right there. Oh, come in, Mr. Boynton. My, but you look handsome tonight. Oh, thanks, Miss Brooks. You, uh, you look quite handsome yourself. I'm glad to see you're all ready. I'm just raring to go. Well, unrare yourself, Mr. Boynton. <laughs> I'm afraid I can't go with you tonight. Oh, but, but you said on the phone that Mr. Conklin will be back Yes, you... that was before he called me again. He won't be here until tomorrow morning. I can't leave Stevie alone. But I've been thinking, Mr. Boynton, we could have quite a nice time right here tonight. Here? You and me? And the phonograph. There are some fine records stacked over there by the sofa. But, Miss Brooks, we have no chaperone. Who has no chaperone? I'm here. <laughs> I'm sorry, Miss Brooks. I've already paid for my ticket, and the other members of the club expect me at the club jamboree. In fact, I promised I'd be there by 10.30. Well, it's only 10 now. You could stay for a little while. Here, sit down on the couch, Mr. Boynton. Well, I, I guess I could stay for about ten minutes or so. Fine, we'll have a million laughs. <laughs> uh, do you like records, Mr. Boynton? Oh, yes, I do. Oh, say, here's quite a pile of them. Let's see what some of the titles are. That should be fun. Here's a batch for you. I'll go through these. Uh, uh, don't you think you're sitting rather close to me, Miss Brooks? I know I'm sitting close to you, Mr. Boynton. Well, I, I mean, I'm a little off balance. I don't want to break any records. Don't worry, you won't. <laughs> oh, say, here's a great old number. If I could be with you one hour tonight. I'm a lone cowhand. <laughs> Baby, it's cold outside. <laughs> don't fence me in. <laughs> I'm in the mood for love. It's too late now. I can dream, can't I? All right, Louie, drop the gun. Everything I have is yours. I got plenty of nothing. Drink to me only with thine eyes. had all the water you're going to get. Now go to sleep. Okay, okay. I'll get petulant. <laughs> maybe, maybe you should let him have it, Miss Brooks. I'd love to let him have it. <laughs> uh, he's had quite enough, Mr. Boynton. Oh, say, here's a beautiful number. The Bells of St. Mary's. Oh, that is beautiful. <laughs> Excuse me, Mr. Boynton. Oh, before you answer it, Miss Brooks, I'd like you to know... I, I've changed my mind. I just can't stand the thought of you spending New Year's Eve alone, so, well, I'll call my friends and tell them not to expect me. That is, if you still want me to stay here with if you. If I still want you, Mr. Boynton, don't move from that spot. Be right there. If I still want him, he says. Hi, <laughs> hey, is that 
Yes, Miss Brooks. We just couldn't stand the thought of you spending New Year's Eve alone. Come on in, Walter. Oh, but uh, what about your friend's party, Harriet? We told them we weren't coming, Miss Brooks. Walter and I have decided to spend New Year's Eve right here with you. With me? But Mr. Boynton's here. Oh, hello, Harriet. Walter, how how are you both? I'm fine, thanks, Mr. Boynton. Uh, We came back to help Miss Brooks celebrate the New Year. Well, good. The more the merrier. I'm staying here, too. Wonderful. We'll have our own party, the four of us. Won't that be just the end, Miss Brooks? It'll be the end of something. a good time so far. So have I, drinking Cokes and playing records. Oh, it has been rather exciting at that. Don't you think so, Miss Brooks? Thrilling. <laughs> I can hardly wait until midnight. What are you going to do then? I'm going to crack open a brand new bottle of sweet air and spray the kitchen. <laughs> it's almost midnight now. Gee, I wish Daddy were here. That would be all I need. Turn the radio on, Walter. The Club Tambourine is broadcasting their New Year's Eve party. Oh, okay, Mr. Boynton. Poor Daddy's missing all the fun. He and those old professors of his probably played a few games of chess and went to bed about 11.30. Well, perhaps it's for the best, Harriet. Your father's a very high-strung man. Too much noise isn't good for him. Huh, I've got the station. Well, it's two minutes to midnight, folks, and here to give you the signal of the stroke of 12 is one of our most distinguished citizens and an honored guest of Club Jamboree. Here he is. Your friend and mine, happy-go-lucky, gag-a-minute, Osgood Conklin! Osgood Conklin? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for that charming introduction, Professor Young. That's him, all right. I have just time before the old year is dead to tell you lovely people that a funny thing happened to me on my way to the club tonight. A panhandler stopped me outside the door and said, Mister, I haven't had a bite all week. So I bit him. Oh, great. Madison's next principal will probably be Milton Berle. Now, when I give you the signal, let's get those noisemakers going and really let her rip. There are only five seconds to go. Four, three, two, one. some of Mrs. Davis's fruit punch. <laughs> oh, gosh, Harriet, your dad's entitled to have a little fun once in a while. After all, people are only human. Well, it is New Year's Eve. It sure is. And it's midnight, too, Harriet. You know what that means? I guess so, Walter. Well, come on, I'm all puckered. <laughs> Mr. Boynton, do you see the work that's going on in the next yard? Yes, I I do, Miss Brooks. Although I must admit I'm a rather diffident person most of the time, I I feel that this being New Year's Eve, I can take a certain liberty. Liberty? You can take shore leave. (laughs) Well, I'm 
ready if you are. I'm puckered, Mr. Boynton. I'm thirsty, Miss Brooks. Oh. <laughs> well, that's done it. If you'll forgive me, Mr. Boynton, I'm going to pour three glasses of water. Three? But who are the extra two for? You and me. We might as well be loaded as the way we are. <laughs> When the bells all ring and the horns all blow And the couples we know are fondly kissing Will I be with you or will I be among the missing Maybe it's much too early in the game Just the same What are you doing New Year's New Year's Eve Wonder whose arms Will hold you good and tight When it's exactly Twelve o'clock that night Welcoming in the
perfection there from Ella Fitzgerald with What Are You Doing, New Year's Eve? And also a wonderful outing before that from Eve Arden as our Miss Brooks. Now, another movie set during that twilight week between Christmas and New Year, and which is interesting for all sorts of reasons, is Beyond Tomorrow from 1940, a fantasy drama with a good deal of heart and staffed by a gallery of great faces. You have Harry Carey, C. Aubrey Smith, Charles Winninger, Maria Uspenskaya, Helen Vinson, Richard Carlson, and Jean Parker. Now, when the company of George, Alan, and Michael, a trio of elderly businessmen who live together in a New York brownstone building with their good friend, Madame Tanya, a dispossessed Russian countess. Now, each of the trio has been a crotchety old grump during their business careers, and as such find that outside of their small circle, they are essentially friendless. This is never more clear than when on Christmas Eve, the household finds out that all of their invited guests have stood them up. The Van Rypers, they can't come. Oh? Well, that's odd at the last moment. Can't be helped. Illness in the family. Illness in the family. You shouldn't have let them know I'd be here. Don't be ridiculous, George. You had nothing to do with it. Didn't I? Oh, I can hear them. George Vale Melton. Isn't he the fellow who's mixed up in the Shreve case? Acquitted? Lack of evidence? Oh, for pity's sake, George, don't be so sensitive. That's all past and forgotten. Sure it is, and don't flatter yourself that anybody remembers. The men come up with a grand idea for attracting new guests to the house. They'll each put $10 and their business cards into their respective wallets and toss them out of the window onto the street in the hopes that some right-minded folks will find them and return them. Well, there must be some lonely souls out in that crowd. You're a sentimentalist. Ha! I have an idea, Chad. Get out your cards, gentlemen. What are you up to now? These are some of the gift wallets that were left over with $10 in each of them. Put your cards in them, gentlemen. We'll throw them out of the window, and maybe they'll bring back somebody to have dinner with us. What, strangers out of the street? Oh, there are no strangers on Christmas Eve. Besides, it's better than sitting around and hooting at each other like three old owls in a barn. But <laughs> not a one of them comes back. I'll take you up on that. Dinner at Pierre's for all of us, and the loser pays. You heard, Chad. It's a bet. That's all right. I can't lose. How long do we wait? Win or lose, we dine at seven. The plot attracts two well-meaning visitors, a Texas cowboy named Jane and a teacher named Jean. After a fine Christmas Eve dinner together, the three businessmen and their two new guests all become good friends. Plus, Jean and James fall swiftly in love. I'm sort of a kindergarten teacher. I keep the children busy and amused while they're convalescing. You know, it helps them get well quicker. Do I have to get sick to join your class? <laughs> I'm afraid you're much too young for that. I hate to let you go. I'll see you tomorrow at three. Good night. Good night. Soon afterwards, though, the three elderly men are killed when their plane crashes. But this isn't the end. The three return as ghosts, each determined to use their unearthly powers to see to it that James and Jean end up together just in time for the new year. And that is when things get really strange. I seem to feel all right. How are you, Chad? Splendid. Light as air. My glasses are gone. I don't seem to need them. So this is it. 
sure it's no more than walking from one room into the other. How's your back? Oh, look at him. <laughs> and my feet don't hurt. And I can see right through you, George. <laughs> you always could. <laughs> and now do you believe in the immortal spirit of man? It's just the habit of being here that brought us back for a while. For a while. And then, what? You're not afraid, Chad. No. Only curious as to what comes next. We'll find that out when the time comes. I have to tell you, I'm such a sucker for these golden age supernatural fantasy feel-good romps. You had the likes of Topper, where a pair of ghosts turn a mouse of a man into a lion. You have It's a Wonderful Life, of course, where an angel brings a man back to life by showing him how rich his life had been. Here comes Mr. Jordan, where an angel gives a man a second shot of redemption by reincarnating him in a different guy's body. So how does Beyond Tomorrow compare to those classics? Well, it's a schizophrenic experience. Every time you think you've settled on a tone, it swaps it out for another one. So it begins with a real Capra vibe. But then when the two young folks enter the house, it turns into a bit of a rom-com. And then the ghosts enter the story, and you imagine all kinds of possibilities. But instead of using that concept to its advantage, it sort of parks them behind a love triangle plot with Helen Vinson, which is far less interesting. I think if the ghosts had been allowed to play a bit more and do all kinds of topper antics, then it could have been quite interesting. Alas, the ghosts' purpose in the film seems to be to argue amongst themselves and then disappear, and you're left wondering why they bothered with them at all. It's an interesting concept, but that's kind of where it stops. It's almost as though a writer came up with a good idea, but then it was diluted until it became unrecognisable, which is a shame. However, it is sweet. The folks who act in it are all rosy-cheeked and doing their best, and any festive movie gets sort of a free pass just for doing its bit to sweeten up the holiday season. So I do recommend it if you like Golden Age holiday movies. However, it won't change your life. That's Beyond Tomorrow from 1940, a whimsical little thing that's almost as opaque as the ghosts themselves. Happy! Why 
And that was Happy New Year from the Maguire Sisters, and Happy New Year to you. Well, we're heading back to Radioland now for a rather more devilish take on a New Year fable. This is from The Mysterious Traveller, an anthology series a bit like The Whistler, which told spine-chilling tales each week. This one is a New Year edition entitled New Year's Nightmare, which is all kinds of fun. It's about a man who has a few too many drinks at a New Year's Eve shindig, only to awaken in the future with no memory of what's happened to him. To add to his confusion, he also finds himself married to a strange woman. I mean, come on, we've all been there after a heavy party, right? This is the mysterious traveller, inviting you to join me on another journey into the realm of the strange and the terrifying. I hope you will enjoy the trip, that it will thrill you a little and uh, chill you a little. So settle back and get a good grip on your nerves. If you can. Where are we going? Well, let us say for the moment, we're taking a little trip into time. In a story I call... New Year's Nightmare. As the old year entered its last minute, the crowds at the Club Tropicana were waiting expectantly for the clock to strike midnight. At a ringside table, a lovely young woman angrily whispers to the man with her. Chris, if you take another drink, I'll leave. Oh, Judy, this is New Year's Eve. It'll be 1947 in another minute. Gotta celebrate, don't I? Just one more. Just one more, just one more. That's what you always say. I wouldn't mind if it were just tonight, but you're always getting drunk. Waiter, another bottle of champagne. Nothing I say means anything to you, does it? Do you think because I've forgiven you a dozen times in the past, I'll do it again? But you're wrong, Chris. Happy New Year, darling. 1947 is going to be our year. No, Chris, it isn't. I won't marry a man who gets drunk in New York and wakes up the next day in another city. Oh, Judy, what are you saying? You don't mean that. You know I love you. Yes, Chris, you love me. But not enough to give up drinking. I'll miss you, Chris. Miss you terribly. But I know I'm doing the right thing. Judy, don't talk like that. I couldn't live without you. You know that. Won't you? I'm sorry, Chris. Here's your ring. Will you please take me home? You don't have to leave. If the sight of my drinking is too much for you, I'll go someplace else and do it. Martin will take you home. Happy New Year and goodbye. Hey, do you mind finishing that drink, mister? Five o'clock in the morning, and I'm dead on my feet. Sure. Sure, I'll drink up. No matter what she says. That's right. Now, you better go home and sleep it off. Good night, and a happy 1947 to you. Thanks. 
And the same to you. Another bar. New Year's. Gotta celebrate. Hmm. Another bar across the street. Oh, gotta celebrate. Hey, mister! Look out for that car! You gonna get run down, Mr. Bob? Look out! that noise? Those horns? Well, darling, it's midnight. New Year's. Oh, my head is throbbing so. Where am I? How did I get here? Why, darling, you live here. Live here? What are you talking about? Charles, I'd better call Dr. Smith. You look so strange. Hello? Connect me with Dr. Smith's apartment, please. Never seen this place before. Hello, Doctor. This is Blanche Arnold. Yes, it's Charles. He isn't well. Could you come to our apartment at once? Oh, thank you. Goodbye. What do you mean, I live here? Who are you? Where am I? I'm your wife, Charles. This is our home, don't you remember? You're my wife. You can't be. I'm not married. What am I doing here? What's your game? Charles, can't you remember anything about us? What are you talking about? I never saw you before. And why do you keep calling me Charles? My name is Chris. Chris Andrews. Chris Andrews. So that's what the initial CA stood for. Oh, that noise out there. What are they making such a racket for? Because it's midnight, New Year's Eve. Midnight? New Year's Eve? But it was midnight hours ago when I left the Club Tropicana. What are you talking about? Oh, that must be Dr. Smith. I'll answer it. Dr. Smith? I don't know any Dr. Smith. Oh, come in, Doctor. I'm so glad you're here. I think it's the amnesia. It seems to have left him all of a sudden. Charles? It's Dr. Smith. I don't know him and I don't know you. And please stop calling me Charles. I told you my name is Chris Andrews. Mm-hmm. Uh, won't you sit down, Mr. Andrews? I'd like to talk with you for a few minutes. What about? Uh, tell me, Mr. Andrews, what's the last thing you remember before finding yourself in this apartment? Why, Judy. She and I were at the Club Tropicana, celebrating New Year's Eve. I see. I remember we quarreled about my drinking. I walked out on her and... Had a few drinks someplace else. Uh -huh. That's all I can recall. Oh, my head. I've had hangovers, but I've never felt like this before. What time is it? Uh, it's just four minutes after 12. But it can't be four minutes after 12 New Year's Eve. That was hours ago when I left the Tropicana. Mr. Andrews, that was New Year's Eve, 1947. What do you mean, that was New Year's Eve, 1947? This is New Year's Eve, 1948. 1948? What are you talking about? It's 1947. Well, here's the morning paper. You can see the date for yourself. 
Thursday, January 1st, 1948. No, it can't be. It can't be. A year gone? Just like that? But where did it go? I haven't lived it yet. Perhaps you'd better let me clear up a few things for you. 1948. Uh, my name is Smith. I was a resident physician until recently at the Park Hospital. Uh, while I was on duty uh, last New Year's Day, 1947, you were brought into the hospital seriously injured, having been run over by a car. When you recovered consciousness five days later, you didn't know who you were. You were a victim of amnesia. Amnesia? Yes, and we didn't know who you were as you had no identification papers. But my wallet of letters... They were gone. The only clue to your identity was a belt buckle with the initials uh, C.A. on it. We didn't know your real name, so I called you Charles for the C. Uh, Blanche was your nurse. I've always liked the name Charles. And as for your last name, we thought Arnold was as good as any. So you became Charles Arnold. But what have I been doing since the day I recovered consciousness? Well, you weren't discharged from the hospital until May. Uh, then you went to work as an insurance clerk. As an insurance clerk? But I don't know anything about being a clerk. I'm a reporter. Well, there was no way of learning what your occupation had been. Uh, so when Blanche learned of this opening in an insurance office, you applied for the position. And that's where I've been working? Up to now? Yes. And then after you got your job, we were married. Married? Charles. I mean, Chris. Don't you remember? I'm afraid, Blanche, she really can't. Married. But Judy. Oh. It's like a dream. My head keeps throbbing. I keep expecting to wake up. There's a date in the paper. January 1st, 1948. Doctor, you said he might never get over his amnesia. Well, that was a strong possibility, but apparently the sounds of New Year's brought back his memory. You're going just like that. Judy, my friends, job, all gone. Doctor, where am I? I mean, what's the address of this apartment house? You're at 5718 North 13th Street, Philadelphia. Philadelphia? But how did I get to Philadelphia? Now, that we don't know. All that I can tell you is that your accident occurred just a few blocks from here. Darling, I know what a shock it must be. Strange. You must have called me darling many times in the past. And yet this is the first time I've, I've ever heard you call me that. Yes. I know. What did you say your name was? <laughs> Hello, Doctor. Come in, won't you? Thank you. How are you, Blanche? Mm, all right, I suppose. How's Chris getting along? He's fine. It's just... Why, Blanche, what's this? I've never seen you cry. Here, here. No, it's just that everything's so changed. Those six months Chris and I were married before he regained his memory were the happiest of my life. And now? This past month since he got his memory back, it's been as though I were married to a stranger. It isn't as though he doesn't try to be nice to me. But it's also obvious he doesn't love me. Now, Blanche, you mustn't say that. It's true, I tell you. 
How can a man love a woman those first six months as he loved me and then fall out of love with her when he's regained his memory? Well, you must have patience, Blanche. It will take time for Chris to adjust himself to what's happened. He fell in love with you as Charles Arnold, and I'm sure he will as Chris Andrews. You just must give him time. <laughs> Let me look at you. Oh, this can't be true. You're being here. Oh, well, it is. Ah, it's been a long time. Yes. A year and a month since New Year's Eve, 1947. Chris, what are you doing here in Philadelphia? I live here. Well, so do I. I got a job with Ryan and Company as a copywriter here a few months ago. Look, Judy, we can't talk here on the sidewalk. <laughs> that's right. Uh, well, look, I, I live only a few blocks from here. We can go to my apartment. Oh, that's fine. There's so much I want to ask, and there's so much to tell. Here, let me have your hat and coat. Thank you. Would you like something to drink? No, I uh, don't drink anymore. Oh? Chris, you have changed. You look so much older. Well, you don't. You're as lovely as that night I saw you last. Thank you, Chris. Judy, you'll have to let me explain what happened after I left you that night at the Tropicana. If you find it difficult to believe, I won't blame you. It still seems like a nightmare to me. That night, after I left you... And so now you know everything. From the moment I last saw you to this one. No wonder you look different after having gone through an experience like that. Well, you're all right now. You you know who you are. You're happily married. You have a job. I'm not happily married, Judy. Chris, you mustn't talk like that. Surely you must have loved your wife if you married her, and she hasn't changed. Judy, there's never been anyone for me but you. You know that. And you still feel that way about me. No, I don't. When we met tonight, that old look was still in your eyes. You do care. You know you do. Please, Chris, no matter how I feel about you, it's over now. You're married, and that's all there is to it. I, I, I wish you'd go, and I don't want to see you again. Chris, where have you been? I expected you home from work hours ago. I met a friend. Oh. Oh, you look so tired. Do you feel well? Blanche, this past month I tried my best to be a good husband, haven't I? Oh, you have been, darling. No, there's something missing, and you know it. Oh, it isn't your fault. It's mine. And as a result, we're both unhappy. You mustn't say that, Chris. I feel that in time, things will be as they were when we were first married. When you were Charles Arnold. No, but they won't be, Blanche. It's no use, I tell you. Chris, who is the friend you met tonight? The girl I was once engaged to. I see. Blanche, you've got to give me a divorce. No, Chris. I'll never do that. But why? 
You know I don't love you. What's the sense in going on like this? Chris, when you were Charles Arnold, you did love me, and we were happy together. I had your love once, and I mean to win it back. I won't give you a divorce. Hello, Judy. Chris. Chris, I, I asked you not to call on me again. Judy, I've got to talk to you. May I come in? Well, all right. But just for a few minutes. Thank you. Judy, even if we hadn't met again a week ago, things wouldn't have been any different between my wife and myself. I'll never love her. And I'm not going on with her. What do you mean, Chris? I'm going to leave her, Judy, and start all over someplace far away. I just came around to say goodbye. Are you set on leaving her? Yes. Nothing can change my mind about that. Now, you, you've got to understand my position, Chris. I could never be happy with you if I thought I'd been the one who came between you and your wife. But if you are going to leave her, I would like to see you again when you're free. Would you, Judy? Yes. But I don't want to see you until she's given you a divorce. A divorce? Judy, I am going to be free. Nothing's going to prevent it. Nothing. Blanche, uh, how would you like to go out tonight? Go out? Yeah, we might take in a show or go dancing. <laughs> Didn't I ever take you out when I was Charles Arnold? Oh, why, yes. We used to have wonderful evenings together then. Well, why not now? Unless you don't want to. Oh, Chris, there's nothing in the world I'd rather do. Hey, why the tears? Oh, it's just that I'm so happy. Oh, come here. <laughs> Oh, uh, did this Mr. Arnold ever put his <laughs> arms around you like this? Oh, yes, often. <laughs> oh, Chris, stop squeezing me so tight. Chris! Sorry, darling. Oh. Oh. You almost, you almost squeezed me to death. That's so you remember that I'm your husband and uh, not Mr. Arnold. And uh, Blanche. Oh, yes, Chris. I'm taking a week's vacation soon, um... Uh, what do you say if we go up to the Adirondack Mountains for a week of winter sports? Oh, Chris, I'd love to. Well, it'll be like a second honeymoon. Blanche, you all right? There's only a few more feet to the top. I'm coming, darling. from here, isn't it? You're right. Being up here is like being alone in the world. Yes, just the two of us. Oh, this past week's been a wonderful one, Chris. I've never been so happy. Nor have I. Oh, be careful, Chris. Don't go so near the edge. That canyon's 4,000 feet deep. Oh, this ledge is perfectly safe. Come over here and take a look at the valley below. All right. Ooh, please keep your arms around me, Chris. 
Looking down like this frightens me. There. You're safe in my uh, arms. Chris, why are you looking at me that way? What way, dear? I don't know. Is your head throbbing again? No, dear. Uh, I don't suppose you've changed your mind about giving me a divorce, have you? Giving you a divorce? But I thought we were so happy together. Yes, that's the impression I meant people to get. Chris, you can't be serious. Why, well, everything's been wonderful these past few weeks. Oh, I see it won't be any use trying to talk you into it. What do you mean? I'm sorry, Blanche. I don't want to do this, but you've given me no alternative. It's really your own fault uh, that you must die. Let, 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 let go of me. Let, 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 no, you're struggling, no. darling. No one can see or hear you. And you can't possibly escape. You can't throw me off that ledge, Justin, and I'll hang you. I don't think so, dear. We've been so happy these past few weeks. I'm sure the police will see it as an unfortunate no. accident. Stop pushing me toward the edge. Chris, don't know. I'll give you a divorce. I'll give you anything. I'm no, afraid no, it's too late for that. Good evening, Judy. Uh, may I come in? Why, yes, of course. How are you, Chris? Oh, I'm all right. I uh, want to thank you for the note you sent me uh, when Blanche died. I can't tell you how sorry I was to hear about it, Chris. Yes, it, it all happened so quickly. Mm. What have you been doing since then? Oh, just working. Trying to straighten myself out. Yes. Judy... Perhaps I shouldn't talk about it now, seeing that Blanche has only been gone a month, but I've been thinking of leaving town. Will you come with me? Please sit down, Chris. You make me nervous walking back and forth like this. All right. But you haven't answered my question. Well, it isn't easy to answer. Well, it would be if you said yes. Uh, I see in your eyes you mean no. Why? Chris, I've met someone else recently. Someone else? But you said if I were free, you'd marry me. I didn't say I'd marry you. I said if you were free, I'd like to see you again. But now I'm not even sure of that. You're so different from what you used to be. Stop being clever. If you didn't say you'd marry me, you, you implied as much. Please, Chris, you're, you're making it so difficult for me. I'm making it difficult for you. And I suppose what I've been through doesn't count. I risked my life to get you. Risked your life? Chris, what are you saying? Are you such a fool as to believe that Blanche fell off that mountain? Chris, you didn't. Yes. And I did because you said you'd marry me if I were oh, free. Oh, no. I meant a divorce. But she wouldn't give me a divorce. It was the only way I could gain my freedom. And now you tell me there's someone else. Oh, Chris. I did it for you. And you're going to marry me. No, I won't. If I can't have you, no one else will. Chris, what's the matter with you? Chris! We were meant for each other, darling. In life and in death. Chris, if you come any closer, I'll scream for help. No, don't. Chris, don't. You won't marry me. You'll never marry no. anyone else. There. He'll never have you. Hold up there. Whenever you are right. Call the police. Why 
didn't want to do it, darling. But you forced me to. <gasps> oh, my head. It throbs so. Everything's like a nightmare. Open up in there. This is the police. The police? I've got to get away. Closing in on me. There's no escape from this room. Let's work our way down from this end of the road to the other. They'll never take me alive. Never. I've got five bullets. Four for them and the last for myself. Maybe it's enough, Joe. Maybe you had me had one of those chimneys. Oh, my head. It keeps throbbing so. If I could only think, all this can't be real. It's like a horrible dream. And they're coming for me. Wait. There's someone behind that chimney over there. Get them to cover. They'll never take me alive, never. I'll show them. Keep down, Mike. Why don't you come and get me? If I shoot it out with me, huh? I'll show you. Come on, Mike. His gun is empty. Oh, empty. You'll never take me alive. Never. He's climbing up on the ledge. It's 15 stories. I'm coming, Judy. I'm coming. He's going to jump. I'm falling. Falling. You'll never take me. Never. I'm falling, falling. Doctor, the patient's recovering consciousness. Yes, you're right. He's opening his eyes. Oh, my head. It drops so. Where am I? Oh, it was a dream. Not real. Oh, thank heaven. Now, you must be quiet. You've been in a serious accident. Accident? Yes. You were hit by an automobile New Year's morning. Uh, would you mind telling me your name? There weren't any identification papers in your clothing, and we'd like to inform your relatives of what's happened. My name? It's... It's... I can't remember my name. I see. Well, what about your address? Can you remember that? No. No, I can't remember anything. Now, you mustn't get excited. It'll all come back to you. You received a fractured skull from the accident. There was a mountain. Mountain? You, you mean you live near one? I... I don't know. There was a mountain. And the police were chasing me. And I... Jumped off a high building. It... It's all mixed up. You probably dreamed that uh, while you were unconscious. But you're all right now. Just need rest and quiet. Where am I? You're in the Park Hospital, Philadelphia. Philadelphia? What day is it? It's January 5th, 1947. It's 7.26 in the evening. And you don't know my name? No, all we have is your belt buckle with the initials uh, C.A. C.A.? Nurse, will you look after the patient now? I'll be in to see him later tonight. Yes, doctor. Are you comfortable? The initials C.A.? What do you suppose they stand for? Perhaps the C is for Charles. Charles? Charles. I don't know. Well, suppose I call you Charles, just for the time being. I always liked the name Charles. All right. What's your name? I'm Miss Thompson, but you can call me Blanche. And Charles, let me be the first to wish you a happy 1947. Thank you.
is the mysterious traveler again. Have you enjoyed our little trip? Oh, by the way, I want to wish you all a very happy new year. And I do hope you'll be careful about making new acquaintances. And perhaps you'd better keep an eye on the old ones, too. For after all, who can foretell the future? Not even Chris Andrews, or should I say Charles Arnold, knows what's in store for him. But we do, don't we? And uh, speaking of the future, I... Oh, you're getting off here. I'm sorry. But I'm sure we'll meet again. I take this same train every week at this same time. And that was New Year's Nightmare from the Mysterious Traveler. Lovely little tale, that. Well, thank you so much for joining me for this New Year's special. In fact, thank you for joining me throughout 2021. It's been a challenging year for everyone, but you've made the ride so much sweeter by providing me with your company. I'm looking forward to telling you about many more classic treasures during 2022, so I hope you'll join me there. Remember, if you'd like more of these shows, then there are over 100 bonus episodes now available at patreon.com slash attaboysecrets. If you sign up, you'll also get access to a weekly film club night each Sunday, as well as my own classic movie library. The Queens of Cinema series is also there, as is the Blueprint series, which are bite-sized Hollywood stories from the Golden Age. Memoirs in Minutes, my all-new biography series, is there too, as well as 11 complete series of The Secret History of Hollywood. Patrons also gain access to all episodes first, including Secret History shows and Attaboy Clarence episodes. You get your own private podcast feed containing everything direct to you. You have your name featured in the credits of everything I make, plus VIP access to all the online events I put on each year, including film festivals and pub quizzes. All available now by signing up at www.patreon.com slash attaboysecret. Only takes a moment, and I'll be there to greet you and show you around. That was 2021 then, folks. Thank you so much, and I will see you with much, much more in 2022. It just remains for me to wish you a very happy new year. Take marvelous care of yourselves and those you love. And bye for now. If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by going to www.attaboyclarence.com and clicking on the Patreon banner. Pledges start from as little as $1 a month, and in return you'll receive exclusive emails, bonus episodes, previews, and e-books. And every dollar pledged goes towards making these shows better and more frequent. Go to www.attaboyclarence.com or click the link in the show notes now to become a patron. Thank you. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.